Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor... More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R And with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be mining the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, They will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. Between the controversy roiling Spotify over Joe Rogan, sudden and dramatic loss of faith by the stock market in Mark Zuckerberg and his company, a crisis of confidence that has caused the market value of Facebook, aka Meta, to plunge by more than a third for some $200 billion in just the past two weeks, and a gaggle of attention-grabbing headlines about Elon Musk, SEC, subpoenas Tesla, 
over one of Elon Musk's tweets again. Animal rights group says monkeys used in experiments for Elon Musk's Neuralink were subjected to extreme suffering. Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chip could give users orgasms on demand. Well, <laughs> given all of that, it seemed clear that it was time to train our sights on the madcap manic, at times maniacal and always mega fascinating world of tech. And for that purpose, it seemed equally clear that the time had finally come to invite an old friend and one-time fellow traveler of mine in covering the quarters of power in Silicon Valley to make her maiden appearance on the podcast. That friend happens to be someone who, over the past two decades, has risen far above the pack to become the premier chronicler, persistent caller to account, and occasional tormentor of the digital moguls, mavens, and mockers who have accrued ungodly power over how we live, play, and work. She also happens to be a hoot to talk with and one of the very few people on earth who can pull off wearing aviators at any time and in any place, indoors, at night, on Zoom, whatever, and not look like a total asshole. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Kara Swisher. I remember writing a story that when they had all those phrases that they had for things, I think I did a top 10 things I know they're fucking with me, which was, we're going to change the world, we don't care about profits. And I wrote this in the journal, which was a big deal, like that essentially I'm saying, I don't believe you. You know, you're trying to make money, right? And I think that was one of the things that drove me nuts about these people. They acted like they were saving the world when they were just getting rich. Kara Swisher and I moved to the Bay Area to cover Silicon Valley at almost exactly the same time back in late 1997, early 1998. Then the tech business was hurtling headlong into the first phase of the Internet boom, which would soon turn into the dot-com bubble and then the dot-com bust. After covering that cycle for The New Yorker and coughing up a book about Bill Gates and the Microsoft antitrust trial, I decided it was time to pull up stakes and head back east. But Kara stuck around and established herself as the gold standard of tech reporters, penning the hugely influential Boomtown column on the front page of the Wall Street Journal's Marketplace section, publishing a groundbreaking book about AOL, and then a scathing sequel about the AOL-Time Warner merger, teaming up with the journal's legendary personal tech columnist Walt Mossberg to start up a very successful mover and shaker conference called All Things Digital and a spin-off website, allthingsd.com, and then unceremoniously leaving the journal, but sticking with Mossberg to launch a new venture and conference called Recode, which was later acquired by Box. Four years ago, Swisher took up with the New York Times, where she is currently a contributing opinion writer and host of one of her two must-listen podcasts, Sway. The other is Pivot, which she co-hosts with Scott Galloway, and not surprisingly, given her penchant for live events, it isn't just a podcast. Indeed, this very week, Swisher and Galloway are co-hosting a new conference, Pivot MIA down in Miami, which the event's website calls, quote, a three-day event that captures the raw electricity of South Beach, a new type of conference that will challenge convention, featuring the hottest names in fintech, media, education, entertainment, climate, and more in America's most vibrant and future-forward city. <laughs> that kind of florid language is, to put it mildly, not very Swisher-esque. Her trademark bearing is blunt and brusque and utterly allergic to bullshit, which, as you know, is kind of my jam too. Our conversation covered the waterfront of newsy dust-ups in the world of tech and media, as well as going deeper on the underlying questions that companies like Meta, Spotify, and Twitter are facing these days about whether they are publishers or mere platforms. Spoiler alert, they're publishers for fuck's sake. I mean, God, couldn't be more obvious. We also talked about the similarities between Zuck and Bill Gates 
and the dissimilarities between him and Steve Jobs on the ways in which the pandemic has left some tech titans such as Amazon and Apple and Alphabet even more powerful than they were in the before times while creating severe challenges for others and Swisher's unique career trajectory, her unusual, for a journalist at least, entrepreneurial itch, and her assessment of whether being an assertively, unapologetically out lesbian long before it was no big deal helped or hindered her reportorial endeavors in Silicon Valley's notoriously male-dominated geek bro culture. Her answer to that last question may surprise you, but it didn't surprise me at all. Because of all my colleagues in this business, I can't think of anyone who's been less phased by prevailing orthodoxies that seem stacked against her, who in fact has reflexively seen biases that would have daunted others as tools that she could turn to her advantage, and who, most importantly, has always been unblinkingly clear-eyed about the fact that, for all the wonders and innovations for which the tech world can justifiably claim credit, it has also been one of the prime culprits to blame for hurling us all into so much hell and high water. I'm making this video to talk about the most regretful and shameful thing that I've ever had to talk about publicly. Now, I know that to most people, there's no context where a white person is ever allowed to say that word, never mind publicly on a podcast. And I agree with that now. I haven't said it in years. I never used it to be racist because I'm not racist. But whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you fucked up. And I clearly have fucked up. Kara Swisher, welcome to Hell and High Water, the, the hardest working, most prolific, most industrious, and most badass looking in a pair of sunglasses journalist I know. <laughs> Thank you. I, I try really hard. Someone I've known for a long time and who I haven't had a chance to talk to in a while, so I'm psyched to have you on here. Um, there's a lot to say about this Spotify Rogan sure. thing, but I just want to open it up at the top. This is like wave two of this controversy, right? First, yeah. it was the COVID part. Then yeah. there was the N-word part. And I would actually say, not only if you have to say you're racist, have you fucked up? Usually when you say I'm not racist, it means you're probably a racist. But Well, but it means you said something racist. I'm sort of more in the Trevor Noah camp of that. You know, I think that's, he understood what was going on, I think, and was saying so very plainly, actually. Totally. I mean, look, in, in some ways, he's handled both of these apologies pretty well. Mm -hmm. I would just say if you say that word that many times over that many years, it's not like you slipped one day and let no. out, you know, let out a racist comment. So it speaks to some deeper things. Yeah, I suppose. So, so just talk to me about what you think of how this has unfolded and where we are in this story right now. And we'll get to Daniel Ack in a second and, the, and sure. Spotify and some of the platform versus are, are they a publisher? Are they a platform questions? But just how just as you've seen this thing unfold, the biggest star on the Spotify platform, on mm -hmm. the podcasting platform, suddenly stumbles into massive controversy. This caused all kinds of stuff to happen that I think you and I would both agree. When Neil Young first said, I'm going to take my music off, we're like, I, OK, probably not going to have any effect whatsoever. And then it's been a, kind of a snowball since then. Yeah, I actually wrote that. I was like, I wish this would work, but it probably won't because it's been tried before. And these, you know, even with Francis Haugen, who had sort of devastating commentary about Facebook in front of Congress and elsewhere, very effective person talking about this. It's still, you know, the way our news cycle is, it floats away, like, or it just goes away. It churns away, not doesn't even float away. It just right. blushes away, essentially. Speaking of toilets this week, I guess it's big in the news, toilet <laughs> flushing and clogging. And it doesn't even clog it up. And so I think what was interesting about this one is that, look, everyone's been circling around these issues around technology, right? I don't even think Joe Rogan's the point here. He's a very popular podcaster. He's very good at it. Yes. And 
as I begin to think about it, when it started, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. They're, he's too important to Spotify. He's too popular. People like him. Neil Young is, you know, someone people revere, but is not Joe Rogan at this moment in our zeitgeist, essentially. Correct. Nor, sadly, is Joni Mitchell or no, these but, other artists who've spoken out, who we love, who are, mm-hmm. who are incredibly important, but do not have the kind of market power that Joe Rogan has. No, now. no, absolutely not. Though the class level is quite higher, you know, yeah, in terms I, I of that. I totally agree, 100%. And revering. We don't revere Joe Rogan. The people no, love him or, you know, I hate him, I love him, whatever. Right. They don't revere these people who, who are real artists. Yes. Certainly. He's very talented in, in his genre. So what was interesting about this is that uh, two things that I took away from it is that this did snowball because it sort of exemplified a problem that was already building is what are these tech platforms doing? Is anyone minding the store? So right. I don't even think it's about Joe Rogan. I came to the conclusion at the end of this that I don't think Spotify listened to him, right? They obviously <laughs> didn't do due diligence or anything right. else. Now, you could cherry pick lots of people over the years. I'm sure you could find things in my podcast. I doubt you would find anything like this. But I think they didn't know what he was. All they knew was this guy was going to get us to where we need to go in our fight to create this new center of business, which is podcasting, and be the dominant player here. Because Apple's coming for us, whoever's coming, all these different platforms are coming for us, some of which have huge resources. And we're going to dominate here. So we're going to buy the biggest, baddest guy that we can, which they did. They just didn't listen to him. And then when controversy ensued, as it always does, because this sort of reminds one of Howard Stern uh, many years ago and things like that, it's an easily comparable situation. Sure. They were like, what? No, not us. What are you talking about? And then sort of forgot to point out that they're the ones that started it and created it. They bought and paid for him. Whether he works for them or not really hardly matters in today's environment. They had an exclusive deal. They were a media company and they declined to edit him. And instead they would trot out words like cancel culture, silence. I mean, one paragraph, they had them all, which is sort of the go-to for tech people when they fuck up. I will not be silencing people, canceling people, whatever. And it's so clear that that's not what's going on here that I think it was a good moment for people who've been pointing out that these are media companies of a sort. Well, I'll talk about Daniel Ike in a second, but I, yeah, I agree with you. All that I think is true. The parallel that seems to me both in terms of how the company in the form of their CEO, Daniel Ike, responded to it, the invocation of cancel culture and the Mm -hmm. other things that he's appealing to is like a lot like the Netflix controversy around Dave Chappelle sure. and the outrage among the employees, which drove a lot of this, right? It's almost as much you're dealing with the problem of your employees being upset as dealing sure. with, you know, the fact that Crosby, Stills and Nash want to get off the platform, right? Mm-hmm. I want to play this one little piece of sound of Daniel Eck. This was before the N-word controversy, but in mm-hmm. the middle of the, the COVID controversy. So let's hear Daniel Eck. I think the big balancing act that we're trying to do uh, as a company that's just critical is balancing creative expression with, of course, the one about the safety of our users. And that's also why we uh, published this weekend our policies and uh, really for the first time did that. And our goal, obviously, is to have as much content as we can. And we're going to try to do everything that we can to build the best possible experience for creators where they can interact and engage with their fans and monetize those relationships. It's those last three words, monetize those relationships that gives the whole game away, right? And Mm -hmm. it was interesting that last week, you know, Neil Young came back at the company again and was speaking directly to the employees and saying, you know, these guys don't care about creators. These guys don't don't. care about art. They care about the bottom line. That's all they care about. You got to leave or else your soul will rot, basically, was what Neil Young said. And And the reason I raise all the question is that the interesting difference with Netflix, right, is that 
you know that a Sarandos is deeply committed to, mm-hmm. to especially to comedians. Number one, number two, he knows exactly what he is. He's, yeah. he's never under the impression that Netflix is a neutral platform, that they're making no. all kinds of choices and judgments when they choose who to pay and who to put up and who mm-hmm. to defend and who not to. And he recognizes that there'd be this terrible fallout in the creative community, mm-hmm. or he thought, that was his calculation, was that if you walked sure away from did. Chappelle, it would be bad for him among creators. Yeah. Do you think that that's like the problem with Daniel Eck was for a long time, he was under that impression that he was just invoking that, we're a platform, we're a platform, we're a platform. And he kind of didn't really understand what his own company had turned into. I think he knows what he's doing. Right. To say these people are unsophisticated, what was interesting to me about that phrase was it's the first time we thought about doing it. Shouldn't it be the first thing you're thinking about right. as a media company? Look, I don't care. He can keep him just like Ted Sarandos. They can keep Dave Chappelle, but live with the controversy and accept right. what you're doing, accept the decisions you make and accept the fallout from the decisions you make. And I think that's what was sort of Ted Sarandos was saying that, look, I get it, but this is our choice. And then, of course, he got a lot of pushback and then he sort of stepped back a little bit more. And that's what media companies do, whether it's Dave Chappelle or Chris Cuomo or whatever. This happens all the time in media companies or publishers. You know, how umpteenth, umpteenth times with publishers, right? They have to stop a book or keep a book or get right. rid of a book or whatever. This is the price of being a media company is sometimes you step in it and then you have to deal with it and you either defend the whatever you bought or you don't or, you know, or you say, sorry, I guess you're right. Oops, we made a mistake. And in this case, they'd like to have it both ways. And in right. Daniel saying this is the first time we thought of it, they're several years into this podcasting yeah. thing. And if you're picking up someone like Joe Rogan, you might have some rules of the road or don't and say so. Oh, we just didn't. We don't care. Like, I I don't want to hear both things and that they just decided maybe we should write some rules now and maybe we should reveal them. And what's really astonishing is the lack of transparency, as if it's some big secret to know what your rules are of your company. It's not a secret. It's not some algorithmic you know, special secret that's going to stop Apple from beating them. It's just a question of taste and whether this is what you want affiliated with your company. And if you do, this is the price you pay. You don't get to have Neil Young. You don't get to have, it's just, it's like an adult thing to do. I've picked Joe Rogan over this person. And again, in this controversy, Joe Rogan's not really the problem. He is what he is. You either defend him or you don't, or you say, we don't like this. Or you call him up and say, what the heck are you doing with this COVID stuff? You know, like that's how life works. And they just would like to play it both ways, and they can't any longer. Right. This company certainly can't. Certainly can't. And increasingly, neither can any of the others. I, I want to be clear. You, you know, I'm as much of a cynic about these things, or at least clear-eyed mm-hmm. about them as you are, which is to say, I didn't mean to suggest that Daniel didn't know, Daniel Eck didn't know that, right. that Spotify had become a publisher, that they were now in the media business. I think he obviously knows that. He wrote the check. <laughs> he wrote yes, the check. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and not a small check. No. You know how, like, I think you've covered you know, business for such a long time. And and one of the few things I learned in the period of time when I was really just covering business was that like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the DNA of these companies gets set down from the very beginning. It's like mm-hmm. they are what they are forever. And so when you have people who come into a company, not from that perspective, even when they know they're making strategic choices to change the company, they're aware of those things. They're not unsophisticated, as you said, but they still haven't quite grasped the implications of it, maybe in the way you're talking about, like what the responsibilities are. And they're still invoking, it's like, there's a mantra-like quality to this. We are a platform. We are a platform. We can't be responsible for what's on our platform. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you're like, wait, you know you got into this other business. Right. And now that you're in this other business, 
there's a bunch of new rules here. And it seems like it sometimes takes these guys a surprising amount of time well, to adapt to the implications of the choices they make. Or wouldn't you like a get out of jail free card for things you do? Like, why not? This is what this is. This is what Section 230 is. This is one a day. You please. know, st- staying away from Section 230 and the platform and liability. Yeah. You would like a, it's a get out of jail free card, essentially, by saying that. And I think they can't move into other areas and not play by the rules of that particular road. Now, look, they could change the rules. They could do all kinds of things. But nobody doesn't think Spotify isn't affiliated with Joe Rogan in an editorial fashion. Now, if they wrote a contract that says Joe Rogan gets to do whatever he wants, well, stupid them. Like, live with and then say that. You know what? We can't. They finally did. We can't change it. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's a choice. You know, this guy's got a lot of hooks around him or hair or whatever you call it. And so I don't think I would give well, so they didn't have the choice, right? And so right. just say it. Like, we don't have an ability to control him, but we gave him money to do whatever he wants. And so he's got all the leverage here and we don't. Why don't just say that? Like, and that's what's obviously happened here. Do you think they're through it? I think the news cycle is such that maybe so, that people will move along. And he has enough fans. They're lucky they have him because he has so many fans. You know, I think they're good at portraying it like a pearl-clutching liberal, like, oh, I can't. I don't have a problem. Look, if he wants to say that stupid stuff, he can, but I can complain about it. And so can Neil Young. And so, like, they want to paint Neil Young as a cancel culture person and them as responsible. They're not responsible. They're not being responsible. And Neil Young has every right to protest, right? That's right. That's how it works. And so I don't love their idea that, you know, liberals hate George. Like some, I like some of his stuff. I don't like other stuff. Yeah. I think his COVID stuff is reprehensible. It's reprehensible. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of people I scream at at the TV that way too. And so, you know, I think the only issue I have with him is his, aw shucks, I'm just a little guy. When he's making this much money, he has this much of an audience. Enough with that. He's not a simple guy. He's a powerful guy. And if he wants to be responsible with that much influence, he should be. I'm not his mama. He wants to behave like this. I don't know what to say. I think it's kind of gross. But at the same time, it's his life to do this. And it's up to Spotify to to know whether they want to affiliate with him. Obviously, they do because it's good for business. So the last question on this matter, you're, mm-hmm. you know, one of you, you have a couple of podcasts. One is mm-hmm. Sway and the other is, is Pivot with Scott Galloway. Galloway said mm-hmm. that he's taken his, his own individual podcast off the Spotify platform. He has. He's done that. You, I saw, wrote somewhere or said somewhere that you got rid of your premium account on Spotify. I did. And said, enough of this bullshit. Get fact checked or else I'm not paying for this shit. Have you thought about going further with, no. with Scott, either on Pivot or on Sway? No, I don't. I get why he did it. We talked about it in detail of what we did. I don't think it's an empty gesture. It's not exactly an empty gesture. I don't see the point of it. I don't think that's what's effective. I, I'm acting like a consumer on the other thing. I just don't want to pay Joe Rogan. I don't want right. to like do a better job. I like I do that all the time with all kinds of media I consume. I don't want to watch this anymore. I don't want to look at this anymore. I don't want to eat this anymore. That's where I was going from. From the platform point of view, I think no. I, I decided no, and there's lots of reasons. I respect the people who did it again, and I get it. And there may be a moment, maybe something unsurfaces where I'm like, you know what, enough of this, enough of this, I suppose. And I agree, the COVID stuff is reprehensible. The other stuff is not great. It's not, it's pretty bad, but I, I don't think it's effective, I guess. Right. It's not like it's a big part. The thing is, it's not that big a part of our, um, it's still, you know, the world is Apple right now. And sure. of course, what's really lost in this is that the whole thing, a lot of the legal cases around this is Apple being a giant to Spotify, yeah. and Spotify yeah. has lost all its little guy 
Mojo. Mojo and work with me and yeah. I'm a victim. I, I don't feel sorry for them at all. And I should, honestly. They, they are kind of under siege from Apple and others. And now I'm like, I don't care. I do have actually one more question about this. Sure. Like, you're basically sort of saying that at this moment, the level of offense is such that you make these decisions on the basis of efficacy, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not so, I'm trying to translate what you just said. Basically, like you could imagine there being something so terrible that you would pull your stuff off Spotify purely on principle, regardless of what impact guess, it had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the basis of what's currently on there, your attitude is, well, it's not bad enough for me to pull my stuff on the basis of principle. And in terms of efficacy, I'm not going to have that much impact. So why do it? Uh, is that is that a, is that a good rough translation? I don't, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's the most effective. I think me right. being really loudmouth about it is the yeah. best way to do it. Yeah. And I get why Scott. I get why Roxanne Gay did it. I get it. Yep. And it's a good choice. It's also a good choice. It was very close. You know, it was super close. There was no pressure from Box or anything. They let right, you know right, right. they own Prop G. They would have let us do what we wanted, but it didn't seem like. I don't know. I just I was out on the other side of the not that far from Scott though. I'll tell you that. So, so here's a good journalism question for you mm -hmm. that I'm curious what you think about, because we're basically of the same generation and, and maybe mm -hmm. of the same mindset about this. I don't know. You know, as we think about cutting sound for a podcast like this, you know, sure. I'm looking at the the thing that Indie Irie put up, you know, which mm -hmm. is the mashup. Yes. Rogan, I will say, <laughs> kind of after apologizing profusely, then says it's all part of a political hit job. And it's kind yeah, of unfair. Yeah, he says it the next day on the podcast, which yeah, is a little, whatever. you know, a little cheesy. They're such victims. But we, yes, I know. So terrible, Joe Rogan, with his $100 million contract. There's a whole aggrievement economy among certain people. It's ridiculous. Yes, well, and this goes to the thing I'm about to ask you, right? So to me, that mashup of him saying the N-word is on Instagram. And a lot of people have seen it there. And it, it sparked this entire controversy. Sure. As a matter of basic news judgment, my instinct is like, well, let's play that thing. Let people hear it. How bad does it sound? You know, I'm not, we're not endorsing it. We're going to contextualize it. We're going to mm -hmm. criticize it. We're not saying we're for it. But this was a thing in the news and for anybody who hasn't heard it, this is the thing that caused all this controversy. Mm -hmm. I would, by instinct, I would play that sound. Mm -hmm. And yet I've had many instances on television, you know, where it's like, we can't play these things because people will get too upset. Right. How do you feel about, I mean, the N-word is obviously a special case, but I mean, if I played that right now, would you think that would be a mistake? I'm not no. going to play it, but if I played it, you no. think it would be a mistake? Would no. you be offended? No. No. No, I think, well, some people would, sure. I know. But I think yeah. I, I treat listeners like adults. Right. And they can deal with it. And I, I realize it hurts a lot of people and it hurts them badly. And it, um, I kind of treat listeners like adults and warn them, say, we're going to play this, I guess. And yeah. uh, if kids are listening, you might want to move them away or something. Right. Trigger warning. You know, they have to hear what it is instead of me telling them what it is. I think in a lot of ways, we have to have more respect for the audience and their ability to make their own judgments. Amen. Kara Swisher, I'm Mike Stoppings. Something so so delicate and dainty like your sensibilities. Not, again, not let's your treat mama. Them, let's treat them. Let's treat people like they're smart enough to understand when you provide mm -hmm. context and the proper framework. You know, the next topic on my mind is you wrote a column the other day, which I was waiting mm -hmm. for you to write about kind of the moment we're in, broadly speaking, about where tech is in the post-pandemic moment. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'll summarize this correctly, saying, "Hey, you know what? Like I said that on the other side of this, mm -hmm. the big would get bigger and more powerful, and that's not a great thing." And we're about to head into this new moment. Mm -hmm. we, we have some things to be hopeful for. You cited there's, there's a lot of innovation mm -hmm. out there and stuff. But just kind of tee that up. Like, what do you think the pandemic did to the technology industry? And what are the big dynamics going forward? Well, let me just back up. In the beginning of the pandemic, in March of 2020, when it really got started, yeah. I wrote a column. At, at that moment, a lot of tech stocks were off quite a bit. And everyone was like, oh, no, everyone's going to get hit. Tech got hit. And I was like, no, no. These people are teed up for a pandemic. Yeah. 
And I said, this is such an opportunity for tech companies to get bigger because a lot of their competitors will get weaker. And so that's what happened is they were able to take advantage and it accelerated every trend, whether it was movie going to streaming, whether it was physical workplaces to virtual workplaces, everything went forward. And I said, some of it's a good thing because a lot of these trends should accelerate, but it accelerated, it moved it from five years to one year. And so that was really interesting to me. And now, right now, as we're coming out of it with these companies in the positions of strength they are, you start to understand which ones are going to suffer and which ones aren't, that you can start to separate them and see where they're going and the challenges they face. Gaming companies is a very good example. We're moving into this metaverse idea or uh, uh, where it's going to require a lot of technology and money and creativity and all kinds of things. Who is set up to do that? And I think Microsoft's per- purchase of Activision was really canny coming out of the pandemic because that's where the first place you're going to see a lot of metaverse stuff is. Companies like Facebook, well, guess what their whole business is? Online advertising. It's under siege from a regulatory point of view, from a consumer weariness, from a consumer distrust point of view. Their product is not innovative or changed in any way. They didn't use the opportunity to move forward with a new look. And in fact, during the pandemic, they got beat up, right, in terms of what they've been making. And we're attempting to put on a new costume by turning to meta, like, now we're this, forget about that, that kind of thing. We're going to put that over here. That's not us, even though it's still its principal business. And so my whole premise was like, look, you've got to start looking about who is advantaged going forward with the trends that are coming, which include Web3. Broadly speaking, it's a grab basket of things. The last one was mobile. This one is this. This is a virtual, really interesting possibly full of scams, as you know, from the beginning of the internet, going to be full of scams, then there'll be good stuff yeah. and also scams. Um, and, and with, with some, some porn, porn with some porn, porn sprinkled in there, always porn. There's always got to be porn there in the should early be part. You throughout, know, so. throughout. Yes. Porn is persistent in a good and bad way for these kind of technologies. And um, actually, it's good. I don't care about porn. Uh, well, not... not <laughs> Anyway, I'm not going to go into my porn taste. <laughs> this, like, this, this is a, this could be yeah, a long yeah. I'm, you know, I'm interviewing like, you know, Carolyn Spiegel, who has a company called Quinn Audio, next week, and yeah. she's actually the sister of Evan Spiegel, who started Snapchat. Yeah. It's all audio porn. It's super interesting, I have to say. So I'm totally getting off. Thing. Anyway, you've got to start looking at where it's going to go, who are going to be the yeah. big players and who are positioned to do well. Like I think Microsoft is really well positioned. I think Apple is really well positioned. I think Amazon is really well positioned. And then you look at the things that are going to be problematic for them. In the case of Amazon, I think the workplace, the amount of workers they have, you know, even if they won in Alabama, they're going to have major worker issues going. That's going to be their right. big thing. Apple, obviously the app store, but they're really well positioned in terms of the AirPods and metaverse and stuff like that. They're very well positioned. Microsoft, well positioned. Facebook, problematic. Netflix, problematic because everyone's getting into it. Let's pause on that for a second. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, take these companies and sort of think they're the fang stocks, right? Yeah. You think, you know, so as you wrote, Alphabet slash Google Mm -hmm. doing great. Mm -hmm. Apple doing great. They're not that they don't have challenges yeah. in the future, but they've come out of the pandemic stronger right. than they were and, and, and well positioned mm-hmm. to deal with the, every company always has challenges going forward. You know, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, the three A, big A companies, mm-hmm. all in a good place. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, we'll call it you the know, A's. The, the, the Facebook thing, though, is I want to talk about more just because Facebook's meta, whatever you want to call that company now. Mm-hmm. You know, as everybody pointed out when the stock plunged, plunged. a couple still weeks plunged. ago, still plunging, still not plunging. plunging. And this notion of the fact that the number of daily users dropped for the first time ever 
what explains that? I mean, I, I get that Facebook's got all kinds of problems and we've talked about them at length and ad nauseum. Some of them are real problems to our political problems. We'll talk about that in a little bit later, but in the business, why would it be that that a big giant social networking company in the middle of a pandemic where more people are online all the time that's increasing right. its power in a lot of ways all through the pandemic suddenly loses users? What's that about? Well, I think there's three major things going on there. I think that you have to really pay attention to. One is the changes Apple made. Apple is the regulator of the internet, just so you're aware. Our government can't do it, but Apple certainly can. So Apple has really right. shaved off income from Facebook via its new privacy with the opt-in, opt-out. It's really affected them because Facebook's business is to be an information thief. That's what they are. And Apple has put a stop to that. Now, others have coped. Like Google has other signals it can deal with. App Facebook does not have as many signals. It still has so many. You know, they have so many relationships and this and that. But I think that that was one thing, was that the, the coping with the Apple problem, which is a really yep. serious problem for them. The second one is competition, you know. TikTok. Yep. That's the company of the moment. It wasn't Snapchat never got to that level. Right. Neither did Twitter, neither did anybody else. But here's a company. Let's put the Chinese stuff aside. And you shouldn't because three years ago, I wrote a piece saying I have a burner phone for TikTok because guess what? The Chinese are watching us essentially. It is a creative, interesting place where creators are moving, right? And it's run by a right. really interesting former Google yep. person, Vanessa Pappas. Very canny, has done a lot of things, started to address problems on the site right away. They're very proactive in saying that versus being all victim-y like Facebook likes to do. Like, oh, you're mad at us again. They're not like that at TikTok. They're like, oh yeah, we have to do this around. They just did something around gays and lesbians. They're just, yep. they're very proactive in understanding dangers, although not always as effective as people would like. It's also a place where creators like, where all kinds of interesting things are happening in advertising. All kinds of interesting things right. are happening in the creator economy. Obviously, they're going to run into problems, but Facebook has not been able to make fetch happen with reels, right? right? It didn't work out with their cryptocurrency thing very well. It didn't work out with dating. What happened to that? Yeah. You know, they're trying with Oculus, right. a very good product, but I think small right now. That's where they're trying to make it big, but still a small business for them. It's sort of like Google messing around with moonshots, right? That's not a big business right. yet. So they've got that, the the competition, Apple, and then they've got just a basic problem that they haven't innovated that app. And people get tired of things, right? People get tired of using a mass app like that. And they haven't done things that is, have made people want to stay when there's alternate things to do, whether it's TikTok or whatever you want to move. And the last thing is they haven't captured the imagination of younger people. Right. You know, my sons would rather die than be on Facebook, right? My teen sons. Now, th I, that's an anecdote, but I think it iterates all over the place. Their big calling right. card was Instagram. And I think TikTok has taken the wind out of Instagram in many ways. Still big, still important. Yep. But everyone I know is over at the party over at TikTok, right? So, and that's what happens. That's what happens. So let me just ask you this one question about because there's a leadership question here, and then I, I want to talk a little bit about your past and your history and stuff. But like, you know, one of the things I found interesting in the one of these exchanges you were having with Galloway, Galloway was trashing the Oculus yeah. and the Reality Labs division, how much money they've lost. He called it a flaming bag, bag of, of shit. shit. I believe, yeah, flaming yes, bag it's of very, shit. Very, it's very uh, uh, sophisticated analysis of the situation. Well. It's at least it's vivid language. They <laughs> taught you that back in yeah. when we were young writers. Um, but you made this point, which was really interesting. And and it's not, I think, the conventional wisdom about this, which is that you said a very quick point. You said Mark's also bored mm -hmm. with it, right? The core business model. I want to play just really quickly. I want to play Kramer here because I, I do think it's the board question 
is super it interesting is. in the sense that it speaks to a thing that you well, I was listening really well, to. I was listening about, to the to the quarterly. I, he sounded bored. I don't know what else to say. Right, but the thing about how much the character of these people, especially in entrepreneurial startup tech cultures, mm-hmm. like the, the it turns out that like the disposition 100%. of the founder mm-hmm. matters enormous amount. You can point back to Steve Jobs and to a, a lot of others. But here's the kind of Kramer view, the Jim Kramer view. You know, you hear this on CNBC. Here's Jim Kramer. I know this is probably out of fashion. I have total faith in Mark Zuckerberg. I think Zuckerberg's going to be able to pull off both the metaverse and also deal with the Apple privacy problems. I think he's a fierce competitor. He has decided that TikTok is who he's gunning for. I think Mark very much recognizes this is not an existential moment. This is a strategic and competitive moment. And I think people are viewing it as existential. I think they're going to be proven wrong. So two questions come out of that. One, is this an existential moment? And second, you know, do you think that that is maybe a lagging indicator of of an assessment of, I mean, every, for a long time, Mark Zuckerberg is a genius. He might be amoral. He might be weird. He might be a lot of things we don't like, but he's a visionary, no, right? I don't think he is. And, and you, I know you're not fighting that. He's like, I'll let you, but the notion that he might, even if he's a visionary, if he's a bored visionary, that's not very helpful. So just kind of speak to me about what you think yeah. were the Zuckerberg leadership question, whether Zuckerberg's leadership qualities. I do not think Jim is right there. I think he's completely wrong. Mark Zuckerberg is Bill Gates. If I had to like put someone on, and I don't think... Any of us would consider as much as he accomplished as a creative, not at all, as a visionary, no. sort of, as an executor, excellent, right? That's what how you would sort of, and in fact, not always either because of the stuff that happened around the Monopoly cases. So I would say that I never saw Steve Jobs up until his death bored a day in his life. Never. He was nearly Last interview we did with him months before he died, he was very excited about television. He was always thinking, he was always creative. He was a creative mind. You might not have liked him. You might thought he was a pain in the ass, this and that, but always creative, always moving. I'd say the same thing about Jeff Bezos, you know, until recently he's got other interests, but, you know, he's got other interests, but very creative, constantly curious, constantly. He is a visionary. He did have vision, visions of what he wanted to do. I think he still wanted to. He just, he has other things, like, right? That's the way it works. Unfortunately, when you get all this money, you have a lot more choices. So I I think Mark is like Bill Gates. And one of the things they've done really well has been to copy people quickly. Think of something creative out of Facebook. Try. It's newsfeed. That was a long time ago, right? That was a good idea. I wouldn't say it's a creative idea. Most things they do is a copy. It's very hard. They've tried their very best to put Snapchat out of business. There's a creative guy. Snapchat, the CEO there. I would say Tim Cook is more creative than Mark Zuckerberg. You know what I mean? Like if I had to like stack rank creativity, Mark would be at the bottom. And I think a lot of what's coming requires that. You can't just copy it or buy it. And everywhere he goes where he copies, he's not as successful, right? We give him like an enormous, like, isn't he a genius? Isn't he a genius? He's really good at selling advertising. Yes, he is. Fantastic. He's really good at buying companies and quashing others. Yes, he is. You know, that kind of thing. And so I don't agree with that. I I don't find anyone at that company particularly creative at all. I don't. I don't. I yeah, I, 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 you know, it's very Microsofty, and in that way, I, it is. I, I, I thousand percent Great agree. I, I thousand percent agree with that. And if they ever want to give Bill Gates, you know, have written a book about this, yes, you if you ever have. want to give Bill Gates credit for anything, there was a genius in seeing the notion 
that the mainframe era and the microcomputer era. He did. Yep. That would be the stack would get unbundled and that mm -hmm. owning the core of the operating system and the apps that lived on top Genius. of it would be a way to make a ton of money. There's a business visionariness to that. 100%. That you can't deny. But certainly yeah. there's no one who's ever written a line of code who thinks Bill Gates is a computer genius. And I think that's probably the kind of similar way that some people think about Mark. Yeah. Well, what, many years ago, I remember Bill Gates was mad at Steve Jobs about something. And and I think Steve said, what do you think he's mad about? I said, you're Edison and he's Henry Ford. And yeah, he wants right. the, the, I said, the day, and this was before he was sick. So I yeah. wasn't like talking about his death, but I said, the day you die, it's going to be the world's greatest computer vision, you know, digital visionary died today. When yeah. he dies, the world's richest man died today. Yeah. Now he's been very creative around philanthropy yep. and all kinds of things. It's changed that headline, but I don't think anybody the way they think about it, it has all to do with money. It has all to do with stock. It's not that product was great. Like, yeah. think about it. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Oculus is pretty cool, but that's Palmer Lucky. I'm sorry, the original idea or whoever, all the people around Oculus. The metaverse is about creativity. It is not about muscle. It's about creativity and also computing muscle, but it, it takes both. And that's why I think the Microsoft, I think Satya Nadella is a very yeah. visionary CEO, yeah. actually, and has turned out to be. So, the purchases he's made have been very smart, very strategic, very interesting. All right. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back with more Kara Swisher on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Kara Swisher on Hell and High Water. You know, you're now, you know, have branched out far beyond the confines yes. of Silicon Valley and technology and you're focused on power and other things and you do all these things very interestingly and very well. But the truth is, you know, for a long time, you were really synonymous with being the most plugged in and most powerful in some ways journalists covering Silicon Valley out there. Here's the best sign of how important Kara Swisher was in Silicon Valley at one period of time, how kind of synonymous that she actually made this cameo in the fabulous HBO series, Silicon Valley. I counsel any young founder today to pursue your dream, not for profit or valuation or material wealth, but for the good of humanity. Which is easy for you to say being a billionaire. <laughs> I don't care for your tone, Kara. I'm getting a little tired of this bias against the leaders of our industry. I'm continually creating jobs and helping people, and I'm tired of getting slapped for it. I didn't steal the money I have, and I resent being treated like I did. You know, there is a climate in this country that is very dangerous. It's dangerous out there for billionaires? <laughs> There's that attitude again, Kara. Billionaires are people too. What's great about that clip, of course, is that it's a parody in which it's actually not a parody. It's just it's just actually the exact kind of exchange that could have taken place on almost any random. Yeah, and also then he goes on and does the Nazi. Right. It's he, like it's like yeah. he makes which happened, yes. right? That it's we're being persecuted. Yeah, that, that it's one. it's incredible, and it, like I said, could have happened. That exchange could have happened on any given Wednesday for a long time between you and, and some tech CEO. It probably today. did. Yeah, it happens, yeah. still happens today. When you moved to Silicon Valley, it was 1997? You moved out to the Valley? 96, 97. 96, yeah, somewhere in there. Because you yeah. and I basically went out there around the same time. And it was yeah. a moment, you know, where, a yeah, moment in the industry, but also a moment where, you know, an industry that had largely been covered by the trade press. Suddenly mm -hmm. there were people showing up who were kind of like, yeah, you know, I mean, I really like what you're making. Like, this is really interesting. This is a super interesting story, but I'm not from mm -hmm. Macworld or PC Daily right. or whatever. Fanboys. Yes, right. Fanboys. Neither of us were fanboys. That's boys, correct. Joe. And it was they both like a lot of people who fawned over, I'll stop fawned over you probably more than me because you wrote the Wall Street Journal, but there was a lot of fawning and a lot of fear, right? 
which you seem mm-hmm. to kind of got how that could work to your benefit. Just talk a little yes. bit about like your early time in Silicon Valley and how it mm-hmm. changed over the years that you were there and your relationship to it changed. Well, there are a couple of things. You have to not be a fan. I mean, a fanboyness was very clear and I was sort of appalled by it. And one of the two things I, I thought about when I went there, because I wasn't as technical as some of the people who were writing about it, who were loving whatever the technical moment and were sort of slathering over that they should have just gone into that business. <laughs> I used to say to people, I'm not here to tell you how the watch works. I'm here to tell you what time it is. You know, because which is really the point. And Walt Mossberg, who I ended up doing many years of wonderful journalism with, said to me, what you've got to do, the way this is covered is so slavish. It's so fanboy. It's so they hung the moon. I want you to go in there, parachute in with your cleats on. Like, I love that image. And it always stuck with me. Like, question, like, why? Huh? What? And I think that's really what I I did. One of the things I tried to do was not be threatening. I wasn't, I I don't want particularly threatening. I think I was fair. I think I tried to be very clear. You know, I don't understand this or that doesn't make any sense to me. I said that a lot. I was talking to someone today about my style and, you know, I have another young daughter now and she's always like, what's that? That's what she says all the time now. What's that? What's that? What's that? And I'm like, I think that's what I've done. Like, I think my question was always, what? What's with that? Why are you doing that? What are you doing here? Isn't this wrong? And I think that's the basics of journalism, I think, in terms of not taking everything at face value. I've gotten some things wrong, some things right. I always say when I do, and I think you kind of see it coming. Like, I don't think I was being, there's either a really snarky version of journalists or a very slavish version of journalists. And I think neither of them does a good job about how to really depict what's happening. Because one of the things I thought about a lot was how important what was happening was. I, I used to say to myself, okay, I'm on the beach at Kitty Hawk and they take off, you know, with this plane, right? The Wright brothers take off. Are you going to be the one on the beach going, well, it was supposed to be higher yeah, and longer. Yeah. And what's with that wing? Instead, they flew. So you want to give that sense of, oh, my God, they flew. And at the same time, start to talk about the implications of it and things like right. that. So I, I tried to do both. I think the idea that I'm tough and mean is kind of ridiculous. I find it comical. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. what, I, they're made of paper mache if I'm difficult. Well, I just don't uh, You know, you can be a little difficult sometimes in the best way. I mean, I think that's Why? a good quality of journalists. It should be a little cantankerous and contrarian and, and push people in. Direct, direct yeah. is well, what I Well, whatever say. words you want to use, I think, you know, there are a lot of people in a lot of places that are where solicitousness and trying to please everyone is the gig. And I think for a yeah. lot of people, if your job is like, I'm here to hold you to account. I'm here to try to find out what's mm-hmm. true. I'm here to call bullshit right. when there's bullshit in the room that's going to make people think that right. you're tough fine if that's the word you want to yeah. use whatever you know it's just but it's yeah it's, it, i guess i think it does i think it it changes because i'm a woman it yeah. does like you, and i don't mean to say do that oh they call me bossy and it's so unfair like i don't care <laughs> fine call me bossy but what i think it is is that when they say something and there was a lot of i, I remember writing a story that when they had all those all those phrases that they had for yeah. things you know like we're going to change the world here i think i did a top 10 things i know they're fucking with me right. which yeah. was we're going to change the world. We don't care about profits. And I wrote this in the journal, which was a big deal. Like that essentially I'm saying, I don't believe you, you know, you're trying to make money. Right. And I think that was one of the things that drove me nuts about these people. They acted like they were saving the world when they were just getting rich. I think I made people recognize that about them is that maybe they weren't 
quite so pure. Yeah, and and look, I you know I think back to that. You know, you wrote two books on AOL, but that first one, you know, was sort of when AOL was the internet to a large extent to a lot of mm-hmm. people. And I, I just want to play this. You know, I found a little sound with you from way back then. Huh. There were two different options. One of which is where you were doing kind of the Kitty Hawk thing, and but you were being very, you know, you had this appreciation for the fact that this was a hugely important moment the most significant communications medium yet created. This is back in 1999, and it's going to change the world, and you were- Is this the Charlie Rose eh, There are a whole bunch of them. This was not one of those, but it's basically <laughs> like that. You said this in a bunch of different places. Yeah. This is from July 8th, 1998, I think, while you were doing book publicity for the AOL book. And this mm-hmm. is a thing that was, it was incredibly prescient. You weren't exactly ringing the alarm bell, but you were identifying a thing that a lot of people now recognize requires an alarm bell being run. So here's Kara Swisher in 1998. The thing that's effective online, which is kind of frightening in a way, is that they know who you are. They have a much better sense of who's there. What kind, demographically, they absolutely know who you are. You're scrolling through a magazine, they don't know who's looking at that. They have an idea, but not an excellent idea. And they, also, if you even um, put any information into Yahoo, it's free, but you know, you're giving up a lot of information about yourself. When you start to buy things, they can f- track you like you cannot believe. Television is passive. Magazines are passive. This is interactive. So I think it's a great opportunity for advertisers. Yeah, a great opportunity for advertisers yeah. turned out to be a million, a million b- bajillion Millions. times true. But also like mm-hmm. just the note of how frightening it was. This is now. Frightening, yeah. That the, people did not recognize this back in 1998. You know, this is back no, at the time. it was all great. Yes, or you were afraid to put your credit card into Amazon.com. Well, you were one or the other. Yeah. You were either a, a utopian in Silicon Valley saying this is all fantastic. Or you were someone out in America saying, can I really trust? Very few. Can I really trust? Everybody did yeah. it. Everyone went in. It was so convenient. The convenience was interesting. I was really worried about it because I had actually gone to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and I studied the Holocaust. I studied all kinds of propaganda. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so I, I felt like, oh, my God, a worldwide network of computers that follow you everywhere. That needs to be done very carefully. Um, I was very aware of watching, like the watchingness of it. And one of the things that I remember happening when mobile sort of to take over, and I did, I got to find an interview where I talked about this because I was, when someone was asking me, what do I think? Isn't this great? And I, believe me, I had a mobile suitcase phone before everybody else. I had these giant mobile devices. I love the mobile sure. phone. But I was like, when you're on your computer, you go from site to site to site, and they sort of can track that, right? They can know what you're interested in and sort of, feed stuff to you and you put in lots of information. So when you're on a phone, they know where you went, what you did, and then what you did after that, and then who you called, and they have you in motion. And so it it invades your personal life in a way that's profound. And I I remember being particularly worried about that because they had a tracker on you, like on your body. And so even though I would, I often used to joke that my cell phone was the best relationship I've ever had. it really is you, yeah. you know, a digital version of yourself moving throughout the world. And it, I was always, I just didn't think these people were necessarily bad, but I didn't think they were good yeah. or yeah. had your best interests at all. Well, heart. I'm not going to go down this path, but I will say that if someone says that their best relationship has been with their phone and then says your phone is really <laughs> you, it's a kind of, that's almost like a textbook. Narc- a case, a te- it te- is narcissist. Textbook. Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm an egomaniac, yeah. oh, John. I'm not a narcissist. Well, I'm an egomaniac. I, Try to keep I, I, <laughs> We'll talk, I'll talk to your shrink about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, you know. Um, uh, Narcissists don't do well at psychiatrists, yeah, you know. You know they're you know very that? controlling. Um, yeah. One of the things that, that I would say that has been true about you, and I think you'll agree with me about this, that 
that one of the things in our business that makes you unusual and, and frankly has made me a little unusual to some extent is that like you have this very entrepreneurial spirit and I don't necessarily mean yeah. starting companies. I mean more like mm -hmm. you dominated your beat for a long time, but you were, but you were pair up. You and stopped. Then I stopped. You were peripatetic. You left good jobs to go try new things. You wanted to start up new things, whether they were mm -hmm. conferences or podcasts or newsletters, yeah. or you didn't, you don't yeah. like to, I always want to own this beat and stay here for the rest of my life and be told what to do by someone. No. Like, this is what you got to cover today. It's not mm -hmm. that common in our business, I would say. Um, and it's kind of been like the, the hallmark of your career, right? I mean, yeah. Why you, and more to yeah, come, yeah. I have to tell you. I, I get, like Mark Zuckerberg, I get bored. Like, I don't get bored. Here's what I get. I, I think really hard about what, like podcasting, I started seven or eight years ago with an intern. And thank God I work for Jim Bankoff because I'm like, I've been running this very successful site for you that's high profile. I'm not doing right. that anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Can you imagine? Right. Oh, what? They love to keep yeah, you in yeah. your little lane, right? Like, oh, this will work. Oh, no, I've got to do something and fix it. And so I was like, this podcast thing is really interesting to me. I think, you know, we had code. We had 16 people. I could interview hundreds of people. There are hundreds of interesting people. And he was very accepting of my enthusiasm for that. It was just a, a notion that this could be really big and could make some money. I've always been very interested yeah. in making money. So that's another thing. I don't just do these things without understanding the business implications or at least understanding them. I know it sounds crazy and it's probably a silly thing to say, but I'm really selfish. I'm like, I, I think if you're not, my selfishness has helped create jobs. I sound like an internet person, but you do. when I get creative, things get built, right? So I'm a builder. And so one of the things I get bored with is if I feel like there's nowhere to go with something or that it's not fun. Like I, if, if I'm not enjoying myself, I will be gone. Like, right. and I'll try to find something I really like and love to get up to. I think it, it is the hallmarks of an entrepreneur. Like I quit the Washington Post when I was on my way up to the like political beat there. I'll quit the Wall Street Journal to start this thing with Walt. You know, I'll leave the Wall Street Journal to try this crazy thing again with Walt. And then, oh, I'll sell. Like I sold really fast because I was yeah. seeing the writing on the wall. And so I don't mind change. And I find it very sad, especially among young people, when they feel like they have to be on some guinea pig wheel, you know, where they have to go round and round. And if they get off, oh, no. Like I even say it to my kids, my son, you know, not wanting to... Um, he took a year off and at first he's like, oh, I don't know, mom. I'm like, what's the price? Right. There's no price. Right. Go have fun. Like, I don't mean he yeah. worked, he's traveling, he's doing all kinds of things and he's he's able to do that. And so I think reporters are the most risk averse group of people. Yeah. One of them is on the planet, right? And then they tell yeah. you, you why it won't work. That's one of the favorite your son. things. I believe do. it's the case you have a new daughter. Is that right? Yeah. Two. I have two new, I have, I have four children now. So I have a daughter who's two and a, and a son who is just another son. I have three sons. That, it's a, a son, son who was just born. born yeah, I, I, was gonna say, I knew you have a new, you have like a new, November, uh, yeah. a very new newborn or relatively newborn, at least in the last couple months. Yes, three months yes. Old. That's, three that's months pretty, old. That's pretty new. Yeah, three months old. And then a two-year-old daughter, a 16-year-old son and a 19-year-old son. And a new partner, right? I, did well, I see wife, like wedding? she's been a couple of years. Yeah. Well, what, what, new, a new, newly wed? Is that new, right? Did I see? Well, yeah, we got married in the pandemic. We've been going out since 2018, something like that's that. That's relatively new, though. Yes, I, I consider is. anybody who got married in the pandemic, that's new. That's here. true, that's and not, had children not, and started yes. new businesses. Yes, that's correct. true. So correct. Very, those, are new, those are, by any normal standards, those yes, are new things. Well, she's wonderful. First of all, congr first of all congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, there some very sweet pictures you posted on Twitter of, of both of those things, the, yeah. the new baby and, yeah. the, and the relatively new 
spouse. Yeah. You know, you have been an innovator in a, in a lot of ways that we've just been kind of talking about mm-hmm. on the entrepreneurial front, on getting the importance of this tech stuff early. It, you know, the the notion of being kind of an out lesbian and is yeah. still is not it's not as controversial anymore, although in some quarters it's it still was, controversial. Though. And in the tech world, especially, which is very male, as you mm-hmm. know, very dominated by male. My God, you know, Silicon Valley is, is just one of the most alpha. Mm-hmm. They're they're dorks. They like lesbians, al- though. But okay. it's alpha dork. Well, that's the question I want to ask you yeah, is, is in covering the businesses you've covered, number mm-hmm. one, and within our industry, what has been the experience of being one of the first out lesbians that worked to your advantage, worked to your disadvantage, a little bit of both? I think to my advantage. I think these men want to get along with women, have a real, some of them, you know, there's not many, there's not many women around. And so sometimes it works to my advantage. Other times I'm sort of horrified the the, the implications. I was with a bunch of VCs once and they started talking about someone's looks like in an not a nice way like yeah, you know essentially yeah. nice boobs something like that like right. and they're like what do you think Kara? and i'm like uh still a feminist still a <laughs> feminist you pig like right <laughs> you know what i mean sorry and it was super funny they want to they want to get along with women at the very base they also there's so much i wouldn't say it's it's misogyny, but it's of a different sort. They don't think they are. They don't think they're like, it just happens. There's 10 white men here. What? It just happened that way. And I'm like, really? Did it just happen? And you don't want to be that sort of tisk tisker at them. I just pointed out, I did a story. My favorite story I ever did was about Twitter's board, which had 10 white men on it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And they were yeah. having all kinds of trouble back then. They, yeah. they always do. They're always in a state of like, you know, goat rodeo. One, two, three, four, five. And I wrote a lead for a story. It was about the fact that this was the situation on the board. And you, as you know, as a business writer, you can change a board compared to hiring people. You can make all yeah. kinds of excuses in hiring, but yeah, you sure. could find some people of color and women for a board. You can if you really yes. try. And yeah. especially Twitter, which had, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's a very diverse user Probably. base, very yeah. interesting user base. And so the lead of my story was, and because I, ran the site, I could write this lead. And therefore, I didn't have an editor telling me no way. I wrote it. And I'm like, excellent job, Kara. And, you know, good job as editor. (laughs) Um, And the lead was the board of Twitter, comma, which has three Peters and a dick. And that was the that was the lead. (laughs) And Dick Costello called me up. And I, then I went to write about the fact that they've had all kinds of trouble and what, how did this happen? It's mathematically yeah. impossible. It, it yeah, makes it's yeah. intentional. And Dick Costello, who's a very funny guy who ran Twitter at the time, called me up and said, first, as a comic, that was very funny. Secondly, it's not true. And then he started to go on about standards and this and that. And then we had a really interesting discussion. And I said, the only time you bring up standards is when it comes to women and people of color. And I just want to say your company is a hot friggin' mess. And you're telling yeah. me these guys like are the best you could come up with the kind of thing. Right. And we had ended up having a great discussion and they ended up right. doing more right there. Not enough by, by any stretch. So I rather than like get into sort of haranguing at them, I just... I try to pull them into discussions about these things as people maybe who don't have a clue. I start with they don't have a clue rather than it's intentional. Most of the time it is intentional what they're doing, but I let them out of that. Can I ask you one question, though? You like palled around with them and smoked the cigarettes and stuff. That wasn't ever. I always used to just go home kind of thing to my children. Palled around around with them. No, but you were able to like be more like guy with them. Yeah, like you were the guy. Like, well, I'm I'm a guy. I know, yeah, but there I mean, was a more I mean, guy element, like yeah, well, let's have a whiskey. I mean, I, but aren't you the one who like throws like poker games? In I your, do. In your, I in do. Your That's hotel true. Room that at wasn't me. I mean, it's that not like, wasn't me. No, it's just interesting. Did you find that you had a better in because you were a guy rather than? 
I, I don't know if I had, like, it's hard to compare because you say better. I don't know what the, yeah, what the know. alternative is. I, I always thought it would be hard to be, and maybe, I mean, I, I don't mean to oversimplify. You just said a thing about how being a lesbian in some ways could have helped you in, in Silicon Valley. It, it did were, a little bit. I would have always thought that, that that it would have been hard because the culture is both so male and so so weirdly awkward socially, mm -hmm. right? That so many guys in Silicon Valley, even the ones with a ton of money, at least back then, mm -hmm. were so like kind of verklempt when they came in contact with like a straight woman. They mm -hmm. were just like, you know, that it would have been hard to be that. I, I imagined it would be hard to cover that business as a straight woman. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I watched you, for a lot of and I watched you navigate it. Again, I, I, I'm not in your shoes. So you answered mm -hmm. the way you answered. And that story you told a second ago is really illuminating. I think a lot of those the, the movers and shakers in Silicon Valley I looked at you as like one of the guys yeah, in a lot of ways, which I is why they so. would say stuff like that. Yeah. And that benefited you. So I guess I think implicitly the notion of being able to be a dude yeah. wandering around uh, a venture capital firm that's all dudes, it's there's a level of comfort that you were able to get inside in a way. That yeah, I guess. Be, uh, I just always wondered. It was it's an interesting yeah. thing. It gave me a little more freedom. I would say yes. In general, yeah. in news, in the media, too. In yeah. the media space, it's not just tech people that were awkward with women. Media, well, yeah, well, you for sure, hundred percent. So I don't know. It's hard to judge against what it would have been like. I certainly think it would have been harder to cover some of that stuff if you were. I never sat there and gave thanks for being uh, a straight white dude. But if I could, they had comfort. Up the 30, they, it was a like, I, comfortable yes, level. Comfort, if, yeah, comfort. Correct. Right. I think if I climbed up to the thirty thousand foot mountain to look down, I'd be like, yeah, you know, you got a little better. But here's that. the thing: neither of us took a job with them, and you, I, I'm sure you were offered jobs. I know I was. Both yes, never, never, never interested me. I like the smart part of it, like yeah. the, the intellectual challenges of it. But unlike you, although I'm perfectly happy with money, it's never been like a main. No, exactly. Because like, if yes. not, we would have been owning our islands right now. I was offered some really great jobs. I really turned sure, them I'm down. Sure, I'm, I'm sure, I don't sure know what. I just I remember every was, one of them. What was the best job you were offered? God, all of them. I was offered an early Google job. I was off. It was always around editorial when they thought right. they were going to do that. Amazon yeah. editor. An editorial kind of thing. Every one of them, Facebook, AOL, Ted Leonsis definitely was, and always is like, you could have had a hundred million dollars or two, whatever the number was. And all of them, all of them. Yes, all of them. So you like a lot of journalists did that, right? They went over. Maybe Many did. And and I wonder, as you cycle through your entrepreneurial opportunities now, whether you're just trying to make up for lost time. No, lost, no I'm never going to make that kind of money. I missed, I missed that worth. boat. But honestly, they, I just, even Bitcoin, I had, you know, I was like, this is, someone was like, you should do this. I was like, I see this is going to be big. I just, I don't have the energy for this money making. I just don't have the energy for, it doesn't interest me. Does, I make plenty of money. That's what I feel right. like. That's exactly what I feel like. Yeah. And I think of the, the, the entrepreneurial bug for, I think for both of us is more, like there's just so much interesting stuff to Curiosity. cover, and and yeah, and it's like in some places it's like easier and more fun to to try to mm -hmm. to make a new way of getting that yeah. out in the world rather than trying to like fit into some existing organization yeah. because a lot of those existing organizations are. We're kind of also annoying. bad employees, John. Let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think maybe. Well, yes, we're bad employees. Say, we just really, that, they're not. I can't imagine being our bosses. No, but you just you think just because we're both uh, obstreperous? Yes. And, uh, I'm like, oh, and really, I, I can't and, even try anymore. I'm always like, have, ugh. Like, I literally am like, that's a stupid idea to very yes. powerful people. And I'm like, yes, that's it's a, it's a stupid idea and go fuck yourself. It's yeah, like the, it's the, so the Logan Roy impulse. Yeah, there, yeah, and, yeah. I and, think we're just, and you're bad, not in charge. We're just bad employees. We should start a company called Bad Employees. <laughs> yeah. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more of Kara Swisher on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Kara Swisher on Hell and High Water. 
All right, listen, here's here I want to talk about a couple last things that relate to, well, one of them just relates to a, a human. I know someone who I, well, I have a thought about. I'll get to this in a second. Let's play this clip of uh guy in the news. He's always in the news. Like he was in the news last week because of the SEC <laughs> and also because of the Mars thing. And, you know, you can always find an Elon Musk story to tell. He likes to keep himself uh, in the news. He does keep himself in the news. But let's just play this little Elon Musk on SNL thing just to remind us what that was like back about a little less than a year ago when he mm-hmm. hosted SNL. Mm-hmm. I believe in a renewable energy future. I believe that humanity must become a multi-planetary space-bearing civilization. Now, I think if I just posted that on Twitter, I'd be fine. (laughs) But I also write things like, 69 days after 420, again, (laughs) ha-ha. Look, I know I sometimes say or post strange things. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say, I reinvented electric cars and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? (laughs) It kind of says it all. He's very self-aware, certainly not a chill, normal dude. I really want your take on this. The only thing I'll say is I think that if you think about all the features of capitalism in the 21st century, the good, the bad, the ugly, mm-hmm. the, every element of it. I'm not sure there's any one person who embodies all of them. And and the sheer amorality mm-hmm. of it, even when it's wedded to some very noble goals and goals that like mm-hmm. a lot of progressives and liberals really like, you know, trying mm-hmm. to save the planet, et cetera. I don't think there's anybody who's more emblematic of the moment yeah. and the attitude of the moment than Elon Musk. And, and I'd love for you just to give me your your take on him. I don't really care about them. I mean, the SEC's mad at him for tweeting, whatever, I don't give a shit. I'm curious what you think about Elon Musk. Elon Musk, friend or foe, good or bad? No, he's not a foe. I don't think he's a foe. I don't think he's a friend either. Neither, actually. It's really interesting. The SEC thing, like either do something or not or stop it. Don't like yammer on about it, investigate it and then do nothing. And also, I think one of the things Elon does is point out how stupid some things are, right? You know, why is this manipulation? It's out in the front of everybody. Like, I think I kind of like that about him in terms of pointing out stupid, like there's a stop sign near my house I hate and I go through it all the time. And and that's what he is. He's, he he blows through stop signs and some of them are dumb. And so he points those out. And at the other times, he goes through things we really should have there. And he also is showing that you can't stop. Like Trump does the same thing. Is like he, he wadded up paper and oh, well, someone did it. No one stopped him. No one can do anything about it. He's pointing out how weak our laws are or how weak our fences are, I guess, in a lot of ways. And so one of the things I like about Elon is that he's he is correct. He is doing big things. He has big ideas. He's swinging for the fences. These ideas are important, whether it's space or Hyperloop or cars or anything else. They're very worthy things to be working on. I think one of the things that people forget is Thomas Edison was also an asshole, right? He really was. Go read any book about him. He was a hype beast. He, you know, P.T. Barnum did up. He told lies. He had detectives. He did all kinds of shit. And if he had Twitter, he'd be a jackass. I would be absolutely certain. And, you know, you'd have Tesla going, but, 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 how dare you, sir, say those things, right? That kind of thing. You can imagine. I always say Edison was also an asshole. That is how I explain Elon Musk. And at the same time, he really could, you know, do less like calling Senator Warren Karen. Like, oh, come on. But that said, she gives back as good as she gets, right? It's not like she holds back. Um, She says all kinds of things about him that are you know, for her own advantage. And I like Senator Warren, and I think she's right on a lot of things. But she plays. She does the same kind of thing. She just is sort of on a higher horse than he happens to be. And he likes to tweak. And so I think it's beneath him, but I'm not him. 
I get it. Creative people are often like that. Steve Jobs was not easy. This is not an excuse for what he does. I think some of the stuff he does is rude and obnoxious. And the stuff around COVID, he and I had a real beef on. He almost walked off my podcast when I was like, I think you're wrong. I think you're irresponsible. I think it's grotesque what you're doing. And you know, even his mom was mad at me even when I wrote a column saying that. But I think this is what you get. Did you think he was going to be a chill guy? And so I love talking to him. I find it delightful to talk to him. It's really interesting. He always says something that makes me think. He reminds me a great deal of sort of a jerkier Steve Jobs, if you can imagine that. He's he's sort of puckish in a lot of ways. Sometimes he is kidding. It's just 16-year-old boy kidding, right? Yeah. Yeah. Meme. He's like, a meme is perfect for him. And I, I don't know why we look to him to be our hero or our moral hero whatsoever. Right. 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 The problem is a lot of people, his fan, some of his fanboys are really quite toxic. So it's interesting that like, you know, there's been some of this polling that got done on these billionaires and, mm-hmm. and you know, he does very well. He does. Of the hyper billionaires, he's like the most popular. It's a little uh, like his, Joe Rogan, right? And well, also very like Democrats really like him and partly because of all the stuff related to the green future. But he also skews very heavily male, yep. which is in keeping with what you said a second ago. And you mentioned the Warren thing, right, where you had Senator Warren on your podcast and, mm-hmm. and after he had done the Karen thing and she, you know, went after him hard on on the she question did. of the taxes, right, and didn't rise to the bait on the, the Karen insult, right? But mm-hmm. it, it does open this door to a question that we could talk all day about, but we don't have the time, which is that when we went to Silicon Valley in the late 1990s, the tech industry was still a kind of adolescent industry. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite a baby industry, no. but it was adolescent. It wasn't mm-hmm. adult. It wasn't mature. And it did, had an adolescent relationship for sure with Washington, which is still kind of like somehow we can, we can yeah, exist. Yeah, Gates was the personification of that, as you We know. can exist with like separate from, even though we're the biggest, most important part of the new economy, we can somehow not be, yeah, uh, we can subject. keep Washington at arm's length. Yeah. Well, that's clearly not true anymore. Mm-hmm. And they all have armies of lawyers and lobbyists in Washington and so on. I guess I ask this question as, you know, all of these billionaires have become way more powerful. And you and I are both in different ways. You more frequently than me, but whenever I'm asked, I'm always like, Washington is hopeless. It's, you know, about mm-hmm. trying to regulate these industries. Yeah, they haven't. Do you think there's any prospect for that changing? And how do you see that relationship having evolved between how the tech sphere sees Washington with the same kind of disdain that they used to 20 years ago? Are they more at all more respectful? Certainly Elon Musk doesn't seem to be. But is the industry more respectful? And does Washington ever have any hope of being able to kind of get a handle on some of the things that we all agree, whether it's in Facebook, misinformation, disinformation, monopoly, Mm -hmm. all that stuff? Or is it always just destined to be running behind and fighting the last war. I think they're fighting the last war. I think it's very difficult. I think they're under-resourced. I just did an interesting interview with Lena Khan, who's the head of the FTC, and she essentially said the U.S. government isn't powerful enough to fight these people. Like, we don't have enough resources. Now, of course, she's going to say that, but it's actually true because she wants more resources. But all their resources are mucked up in some congressional bill that's never going to get passed. You know, they were put $500 million more dollars toward the Justice Department and the FTC. I think it's more of a speed bump to people in tech. They've learned how to play the game. They've hired their lobbyists. Some are better than others. Microsoft's particularly good now, the best, I think. Facebook certainly got an operation here. Google's got an operation here. You know, even Musk has an operation. He deals with the Defense Department. As, as gestury as he can be, he has people. You know, he gets these contracts with Defense or NASA, which loves him, it seems like. And why wouldn't you? He's about resources, essentially. And so I think it's much more of a speed bend. At this point, you know, with the whole Warren thing, it was was something I asked her. She was railing about Elon and this and that. And I said, well, why should he pay the taxes? Your rules, he's following your rules. 
So ultimately, you either have to change your rules or stop yelling at him, right? You're not going to tell him to be a better citizen. He can do it or not. He can be a better citizen. He can pay taxes or not. I really, at this point, it's your fault. And I, this is how I feel about Washington is if you're worried about privacy and misinformation, do something about it. You actually have the power to do something about it. And they don't. And so, you know, you have really smart people like Senator Klobuchar. I think she's quite effective and she's moving stuff slowly through in a bipartisan fashion. You have Senator Warner, you have Ken Buck, you have David Cicilline, you have a lot of really smart legislators and you have a lot of really smart regulators like Lena Kahn and others. The question is, do they have the ability to get this stuff through? I think they need to aim at privacy and stop with this free speech discussion. Just go to their business model, go to their business model and go to liability a lot of things will clear out once that's the case. And so if they're responsible for stuff a little bit more, certain stuff, not all this stuff, maybe that would make them think and change their business model. They regulate chemicals. They regulate banks. They regulate trains. They regulate planes. They can regulate this. They can. They just don't. And so at this point, it's their fault, not technology. And I don't, if Elon Musk tries to find a way not to pay taxes, okay. Uh, He's following the rules. Yeah. Their rules, not his. So whatever. Are you are you actually in D.C. right now? Yes, I am. Indeed. Do you live there? I you have to. There. Yes. My son goes to school here. My ex-wife was the chief technology officer yep. for Obama. They stayed here. And I, I'm going to stay here at least until my son graduates high school. He's in 11th how, grade. How long have you been living in D.C.? Uh, through the I, pandemic. I just lost track of you. I, just, I yeah. feel like you're like you're in the air on the wind. I am. I'm on the wind. I'm Mary Poppins. Yeah. Nice to meet yes. you. I'll, I'll yes. stay until the wind changes. I will stay here for a little while. I lived in San Francisco. I miss San Francisco. I know everybody loves to dump on San Francisco, but I think it's a wonderful place. I'm going to either move to New York or San Francisco, I would suspect. But I'm here because my my son is here and because my other son was also here. And for the pandemic with small children, you right. really can't commute. You couldn't commute. Is your newest daughter with you there? Or is she, yeah, is she goes to okay. school here. Yep, she's okay, in that's school. That'll, for some reason, I, maybe because I thought, I thought I thought the wedding pictures were here? No, we did it in New York. Yes, we did. That's what I'm saying. We did. We came up to New York and got married. Yeah, but okay. we, you know, I haven't been in New York in a while. I've been there a couple times in the past couple months, but I suspect we'll probably not stay. You've lived in D.C., right? Yeah. It's lovely. Uh, but in a way, great, yes. nice place to visit. Not any place. I, it's I decided a lovely back in, place to raise I just, children. I can tell you that. It's I decided really back nice. in 1997 that it was a great place to visit, but not a great place for me to live. I don't it, like monocultures, Karen. Yeah. Karen that's the problem. Yeah. The problem is I, I don't like company towns. It was part of why I didn't want to live in San Francisco forever because it's just it's yeah. just too many people all talking about the same thing. Yeah, I just, except I, I had other friends in San Francisco. There's oh, other, I know you. There's, I know. A, I, there's other in San Francisco. Here, there is an other. And I like it. It's Listen, it's a lovely yep. city. And with children, it's easy. And so- that's fine, but I suspect I will not probably be staying here. Although it's a good time to be here because I can talk to all the regulators. And sure. I think it's a critical time for tech around regulation. So so I will say this just as we get ready to sign off here. Like I said, I have a million things more that I could talk to you about. And I know you got to go. But I will say this. You have a, a, the next iteration of a pivot conference that's happening. Yes. This podcast will come out right in the middle of it right. in Miami. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you one opportunity just to like just talk about what it's about. But I will say this. The website says the following, which mm-hmm. I thought... So a rare moment, I'm almost 100% certain that you would not say these words if they were put in your mouth, <laughs> which is that there's that Miami is the perfect backdrop for the event that you might say, but it claims that Miami is America's quote, most vibrant and future forward city. Yeah. Would you like to stand by that quote? I, that quote that you, I like that you, my, you know, all these people are moving future, there. Most future forward city? In this country? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably right now. Yes, I would stand really? by that. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people are going there. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And, you know, Ron DeSantis aside, it's there's some interesting, like a lot of Silicon Valley people are actually trying to make fetch happen there, as as I kept saying before. It's Florida. Let me just explain something to you. It's freezing here and I'm going to Miami to do my conference. How about that? You're just, you're basically just sucking up to the, you're sucking up to the host. They have the most fast forward weather in the f- future forward in, in the middle of February, no, we, Miami there's a lot is the of most crypto future people. We're doing some crypto stuff. We're yeah. doing yeah. NFT stuff. We're yeah. doing, you know, audio porn. We're doing future of media. It's a good place to do it. It's a very yeah. good place. to Magic Leap is down there. We're going to have the CEO of Magic Leap. So it's a little bit more in the pivot. You know, code is kind of like the, the more stately one. And this is more like Roman on succession. That's the conference we're having, Roman's conference. So there's going to be a lot of dick pics being passed around? I hope not. Is that what you're saying? I'm going to try to rein Scott in as much as possible. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing I can think of when someone says it's going to uh, be a Roman well, you conference. Know, pivot's like that. Pivot's a, a little more of a party. It's more of a like a, an Italian family yelling at each other. I don't know. It's all kinds of things. But it, it's, it, it's looser. It's looser. I know people down in Miami who are looking forward to it. And I will say that if you could please mm-hmm. figure out for me whether there is a way for me to pay with either crypto or particularly with with valueless NFTs for my audio porn. If that's like one of the things you could find out where you're I there, will ask Carolyn Spiegel. Things. I'm sure she'd be happy to take your Bitcoin or whatever, I, your yeah. stable coin or your Dogecoin or whatever. And I'm sure Elon will lend it to you because he's got plenty. I, got it. That's the whole crypto thing. We could talk about that all day long. But well, that's another time, topic. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Very important. Say. Despite all Car- the douchebags involved, it's a very important trend. I, we can talk about that later, but it is. That's a great sign-off. It's very important, despite all the douchebags involved. That's that's, pretty, I could have said that about the internet in 1996, John. I guess that's true of Silicon Valley for the past 40 despite years. Despite the douchebags, it's a big idea. Big. Kara Swisher, thank you. Thank you, John. Hell on High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Kara Swisher for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Bidell, Castro Russell, is our executive producer. 